My name is John, for those of you that weren't here last week. For those of you that were here last week, I had, um, at one part of the service, had asked you to stand up to identify with certain statements that I read out just as ways of, of you being able to share parts of your story with the rest of us. And so many of you were vulnerable and shared parts of your life and your story with us as a community, and I'm thankful for that. Thank you for those of you who maybe stepped out of your comfort zone a little bit. And I figured since most of you don't know me very well, it just seemed fair that I would share some parts of my story. A few years back, a lot of people that I worked with started writing these I Am From poems as a way to to process their own story, but also just share about people, experiences, cultures, values that have shaped them and shaped their story. And I've shared this a few times, and I just uh, figured I would share it with you tonight as a way to invite you into part of my journey. I'm from a city surrounded by a state full of wheat fields. I'm from humid, mosquito-filled summers and sheets of ice winters. I'm from the middle. Middle of the country, nothing as far as the eye can see. Middle of social groups. Not quite smart enough, athletic enough, or rebellious enough to be one of them, but enough to be with them. Comfortable everywhere, but belonging nowhere. I'm from rice chicken nuggets, and otter pops in the summer. I'm from a teacher from Brooklyn and his student from Kansas. A mom who played games with me and taught me to study. A dad who loved dart gun battles, sock bomb fights, shooting the BB gun in the living room. I'm from a cheek full of sunflower seeds in the middle infield while my parents cheered me on and learning to be part of a team where my contribution wasn't necessarily the most significant one. I'm from epic sleepovers in my best friend's house, made up games of quick trip and and rad catch, singing REM songs, experiencing my first extra value meal. I'm from learning as a 13-year-old that death takes those closest to us, even if he's just a kid. I'm from hating death and vowing never again to love like that, so I never have to hurt like that again. I'm from sunburns, peeling at the water park, breaking rules and trying to impress girls. I'm from a stable home, same room for 18 years. Always there, always home, regardless of what state or country I resided in. I'm from a stability that has given me freedom to move, explore, roam, knowing that in the midst of all my homes, I have a home. I'm from knowing that I'm loved, yet constantly working to earn something that is already mine. I'm from risks, that I took with every drug put in front of me and risks that people took on me and trusted me with responsibility I hadn't earned. I'm from the privilege and assumed expectation that I could do whatever I wanted, be whatever I wanted, with few obstacles in my way. I'm from having to live in another culture to realize that I have a culture of my own. I'm not the self-made man. I'm a man made by the hard work, sacrifice, and consistent generosity of others. All I have has been given to me despite my longing to take the credit. I'm from trusting others to always be there until they weren't. A terrorist attack, a friend's pregnancy, a best friend's suicide collapsed my trust and fueled my search for someone stable. I am from answered prayers that my dad prayed for me daily and heartfelt prayers that when answered created in me anger, darkness, and doubt. I'll never pray again if that's how you're going to answer, I said. 
from realizing that life can come out of death, even if I'm not exactly sure how. I'm from moral victories, faithful love, steadfast obedience, earned for me, given as a gift. Now I'm from a new family, even more generous and stable than the one I grew up with. Now I'm from a new community where I fit in perfectly, imperfections and all. So those are some snapshots of my story. And just as you got a picture of my story, I hope that this past week you guys were able to explore and, and get some pictures of other people's journeys as well. Because last week we, we talked about the idea that every person is a spiritual being on a spiritual journey, and that we get the privilege to enter into their journey and care for them by exploring, asking questions, and listening. And so I had invited you guys to memorize two questions and to ask those questions to two people. And so, for those of you who did that, thank you for taking a step of faith. If, if you did do that, I just ask that you would share that with someone in this church to celebrate the privilege that it is that we get to be a part of people's spiritual journeys. And if it went really well, to celebrate that, celebrate how God moved. And if it just went awful, like if it was really awkward or the person didn't want to talk, celebrate that too because you took a step of faith to be uncomfortable to love someone well, and that honors God. I think he delights when we're willing to take steps of faith, even if it doesn't go the way that we desire. So tonight, like last week, is going to be a little bit different than a, than a typical Sunday service. Uh, but we're going to spend a little bit of time in Scripture. We're going to continue in Acts 17 tonight. And we'll make some observations from the text, try to draw some pretty simple evangelistic principles from it, and then spend most of our time thinking about how we think about the gospel and evangelism, and how do we actually practice this and live it out in our daily lives. This will require your participation at a couple points, but you guys did good last week, so I'm not worried about it. My goals for this time tonight is, is that we'll be able to better understand what success in evangelism looks like. That you would feel better equipped to transition conversations to the gospel naturally, and that you would be able to use your own experience with Jesus as a way to have conversations with people. So let's dive in. Acts 17, uh, we're going to read some of what we read last week, and then we'll finish the chapter. So we're going to start in verse 22. The context here is uh, Paul's in Athens. It's a city just filled with idols, temples everywhere to gods and goddesses. And Paul's been invited to share his religious beliefs at the Areopagus, a place where they discuss religious and cultural matters. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So I think one point we can see here is that Paul searches the culture for gospel bridges. 
He starts where they are and creates a bridge to gospel truth. It would have been easy for Paul to point out all their idolatry. Hey, look at all these idols, all these temples to these gods and goddesses. To point his finger, to shame them, to point out what they believed was wrong and why. But instead of looking for what's wrong in the culture, Paul looks for what's right. In this case, he sees they worship a God that they don't know his name. And so Paul fills in the gaps for them. Rather than attacking what's wrong, he offers what is right and good, which is truth about the one creator God. There can be times to argue and point out people's flaws, but I think my tendency is to start there rather than seeing what's good in a person or a culture. What are the areas of the gospel they already understand? And that's what a bridge does, right? It starts where someone is, and it takes them somewhere they're not. So if we keep reading in verse 28, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul uses what his audience knows and values to communicate gospel truth. Our culture, every culture, it's throwing all kinds of messages and truth claims and values at us. And Paul doesn't just accept everything the, the Greeks and the Greek culture have to say, but he also doesn't just throw it all away in the trash can without examining it critically. So while Paul believed in special revelation, this idea that God has most fully revealed himself to us through Jesus, and that the Bible, the Bible points us to Jesus and truth about him, he also believed in general revelation. This idea that God has revealed things about himself through his creation so that all people everywhere have true knowledge of God. That knowledge isn't sufficient to save anyone, but it is sufficient to show us truths about God. The Jews believed in scriptures and valued them. So Paul used the scriptures to communicate the gospel to the Jews. The Greeks, they valued art. And through general revelation, they knew certain truths about God which are expressed in these poems. And even though these quotes that, that Paul mentions originally referred to Zeus, Paul sees in them truth that points to the one true God, the creator of the universe. So Paul uses these truths revealed in Greek poetry as a way to communicate gospel truth, special revelation, truth they need to know in order to be saved. So you'll notice this to this pagan audience, Paul never once quotes scripture. He does quote Greek poets. He's able to understand his audience and communicate the gospel to them through things they value and understand. In verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There are things that people need to hear, understand, and believe in order to follow Jesus. We see some of Paul's main points in this passage. Earlier he mentions that God is the creator of everything. And here we see that he mentions the need for repentance, God's judgment on the world, and Jesus being qualified to be the judge, evidenced by his resurrection from the dead. 
though the Athenians had ascertained some true things about God, Paul fills in what they're missing with the truth of Jesus. They'd worship these gods in ignorance, but Paul is calling them to change their minds about who the true God is and give up their idolatry. Because the gospel message about Jesus is one that demands a response. In verse 32, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So some people mocked. Some people wanted to have more conversations. Some people believed. So there was a varied response to Paul's message. And that shouldn't really surprise us though, right? Like there was a varied response to Jesus' message. On this end of the spectrum, you've got people who put him to death for what he said and did. But then over here, you've got the reality that this movement was started 2,000 years ago that's been changing the, war, changing the world one person at a time. So it's fair to expect that some people will love the message. Some people will hate it. Some people will want to talk more about it. In those 13 verses, we see that Paul had a good understanding of his audience, what they valued, what they believed, and he used those things as a way to have a conversation about Jesus. So I spent 45 minutes last week talking about the value of exploring, asking questions and listening, because I think the better job we do of exploring, understanding what people believe, the better we become at being able to guide people to Jesus. So that's what we're talking about tonight is is guiding people to Jesus. In normal life, what do guides do? Can you think about a time that you went on a, a tour of maybe a campus or some sort of landmark or um, a factory? I'd love to hear your thoughts. What, what did the guides do that was good, that was helpful? Tell stories. Tell stories. Point out landmarks. Give the history. Listen to questions. So those things are really valuable and helpful for us as we think about guiding people to Jesus. Because a good guide shows you the way. They, they point out the major landmarks. They may not know everything, but they can show you what's important. They lead you to a destination. And the assumption is they've been there before, Right? So as we think about guiding people spiritually, those same things are true, but we're not leading people to a destination. We're leading them to a person. We don't need to know everything, but we can point out some of the major landmarks along the way. And there's an assumption that you know Jesus personally, that you've been to where you're taking them. And so if you're still trying to figure out if you want to follow Jesus or not, um, trying to figure out where you are on your journey, we're glad you're here. This is a great community to be able to explore and ask questions. We're excited you're here. I think a lot of times we're intimidated to share our faith because we have a skewed view of what success looks like. We can feel like we need to ask all the right questions at the right time and have all the right answers and pray the entire time we're talking to this person and then see somebody trust Christ and pray to receive him as their Lord and Savior right there in that moment. And if that doesn't happen, then it's failure. 
if that's true, who would want to do it? So how should we define successful evangelism? I'm going to offer a four-point definition that's been really helpful for me to take some of the pressure off and realize what's my responsibility and what's God's responsibility. So the first point is, is taking the initiative. That we don't just sit around and wait for somebody to come to us and say, why are you such a good person? I know some Muslims and atheists that are really good people. But the reality is, sorry, the reality is, is that Jesus left the comforts of heaven, took the initiative to pursue us so that we could know him, and he calls us to do the same. Many people in our community are not going to step foot in the church. That's not going to be the next step in their spiritual journey. But they do know you. Maybe you're their connection to Christ. So we take the initiative to share the gospel. And it's scary to talk about Jesus, right? Some people find comfort in the quote by St. Francis of Assisi. It says, preach the gospel at all times. And if necessary, use words. There's some problems with that. Uh, One is it's questionable whether he actually ever said that or not for good reason. St. Francis was known to to occasionally preach in five different villages in the same day. This guy loved preaching the gospel with words. He would preach to the birds. Seriously, like this guy would preach to anything and everything because St. Francis knew that the gospel is good news and news is a message that needs to be communicated with words. Of All the ways the sovereign God of the universe could have chosen to bring his kingdom on earth, he's chosen to do that by normal people like you and me talking to others about Jesus. Not by arguing with people about creation or evolution or what God thinks about LGBTQ issues or how science and faith interact or whether a liberal or conservative viewpoint is more biblical. Nobody ever entered the kingdom of God because of those conversations. They entered the kingdom of God when they heard the gospel from someone like you and trusted in Jesus to forgive their sins and be Lord of their life. What a cool privilege that we get to be a part of that work. Those other conversations can be valuable. They can, they can be helpful. But those aren't the ones um, that move people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So we take the initiative to share the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not up to us to convince people about the truth of Jesus. Because it's not ultimately about changing people's minds. It's about changing their hearts. And I just don't have the ability to change someone's heart. But the Holy Spirit does. It's actually part of his job description. That's why God has given us his spirit. To empower us to make himself known. That's why we can have confidence that in talking to people, there's hope that their eternity can be changed because the Spirit of God is at work through us. It's not because you're really smart and have all the answers. You might be really smart. You might have a lot of the answers. But that's not why somebody's going to follow Jesus. So we take the initiative to share the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, and we leave the results to God. If it's really up to God to change people's hearts, and it is, then whether people decide to follow Jesus or not, that's not on me. That's on God. 
So their response doesn't define my success. I mean, when Jesus talked to people, not everybody decided to follow him. Why would I expect to be more effective than Jesus? One way this played out in my life is there was a, there was a guy that I uh, became friends with at Portland State a few years back. And we would have lots of really deep spiritual conversations. And I remember like one of the most explicit gospel conversations we had. We spent some time in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, talking about how we've been saved by grace through faith. This isn't of yourselves, it's the gift of God. And as we talked about that, he said, oh, well, if that's, if that's how you become a Christian, then I don't want it. I was like, why, why wouldn't you want that? Like, I love free stuff. <laughs> um, and he said, because I don't, basically, I don't, I don't want any handouts. I'm good enough. I don't need any help. And so I just left that conversation sad for this guy because I really wanted him to know Jesus. But he had clearly made a decision to say, I don't want what Jesus has to offer. So as I walked away from that conversation, just thinking about this definition of, okay, I, I took the initiative to share the gospel, trusting the Spirit of God to move in his life, and I can leave the results to God. So despite the turmoil and the sadness of walking away from that conversation, I could say, man, that was success. I did everything in my power to do, and I'm trusting God to do what only God can do. And I can continue to develop a relationship with him and have these conversations and pray for him. So as we think about transitioning conversations from exploring, asking questions and listening, um, to guiding people to Jesus, what makes that transition so hard? I think one thing that makes it hard is Jesus just doesn't seem to come up in conversation very naturally. I mean, I grew up in a Christian family, and I knew that Jesus affected where I spent my time on Sunday mornings and where I went when I died. So if Sunday mornings or death came up in a conversation, like, it'd be pretty natural to have a conversation about Jesus. But what relevance does the gospel have in the rest of my life? That's a bigger question. How can we bring up Jesus naturally in conversations that don't mention Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings for you guys? But don't mention Sundays or death. The answer is Kevin Bacon. <laughs> yeah, you guys weren't expecting that, were you? Um, have you guys heard of uh, the game Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon? Or really, it could be Six Degrees of, of anyone? It's the idea that, that everyone on the planet is connected to everyone else on the planet by six degrees of relationship. That you know someone who knows someone who knows someone who knows someone who knows Kevin Bacon or knows Kim Jong-un, anyone. Um, and I think Kevin Bacon was chosen for this because he's just been in so many B-movies. But kind of the, the way this works is you've got Kevin Bacon. And so you could, you could mention anybody. This is usually done with celebrities. So you could say Elvis. Um, and you try to find the fewest amount of connections. So Elvis was in a movie called Change of Habit with Ed Asner. Ed Asner was in a movie uh, with Kevin Bacon called JFK. So Elvis has a Kevin Bacon score of two, which is really pretty good. Like, that's way less than six. Um, part of the strategy of this game is you can work backwards. So you can start with Kevin Bacon, and you can say, well, Kevin Bacon was in A Few Good Men with Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise has been in a million movies with a million people. 
And so pretty soon you've got all these people that are two degrees away from Kevin Bacon. So I hope that helps you in your gospel conversations. (laughs) By the laughter, I'm guessing it doesn't help. Uh, But we're in church, Um, not in Hollywood. So let's talk about the gospel instead of Kevin Bacon. And let's spend some time as a community, this is going to require your, your involvement, thinking through some things that are one degree away from the gospel. So what are some themes in the gospel? Maybe these are problems that the gospel addresses. Maybe these are solutions that the gospel provides. But what are some themes or just topics connected to the gospel that you would say, if I was having a conversation about this thing, it would be pretty natural to have a conversation about the gospel. Just go ahead and start shouting them out. Caring for the poor. Caring for the poor. Worry. Worry. Faith, suffering, guilt. You guys are way faster than the other services. Uh, And if you can't read my handwriting, that's just because I have really bad handwriting. Uh, Keep going. Joy. Loss. Money. Sin. You know what? Most people never say sin, but it's like the most obvious one. So good job, whoever that was. Love. What's that? Marriage. Death. Forgiveness. Peace. Eternity. Come on, you guys are cheating. I already mentioned a couple of those. (laughs) Heaven. (laughs) Friendship. What was that one? Family. Eating. Is that what you said? Okay. Just checking. What else? Worship. Worship. Oh, that's a good one. What's that? Prayer. What about some bad things? Like guilt. Oh, man. What about fear? Shame. Hopelessness. Anxiety. What was that one? Rejection. Government. Is that what you said? Okay. (laughs) Doubt. Depression. Failure. Anytime I talk to somebody and they tell me they're adopted... Uh, I want to hear more about that because the Bible talks about our relationship with God being one as adopted children. I don't know what that's like, so I'm just like, teach me more so I can understand my own relationship with God. I work with college students, um, so debt. That's something they understand. Um, Okay, so Sunday morning or evening, in your guys' case, in eternity, 
may not come up in very many conversations, but how many conversations do you have where one of these topics comes up? I would argue that every topic is probably no more than two degrees away from the gospel. A lot of them are one degree away from the gospel. When I first moved to Portland, I uh, was just talking to people, trying to figure out what do people in Portland care about? What do they value? What's, what's the natural bridge of where I can start where they're at and have a conversation about the gospel? And there was one thing that almost everybody said they cared about. Recycling. <laughs> I grew up in Kansas. Recycling wasn't very big in Kansas. And I started to ask people why they cared about recycling. I was kind of shamed because I was like, man, here's all these non-Christians that like, care about the planet, God's creation, more than I do. And they're taking active steps to like be good stewards of it. They don't even have a theology of why they should be good stewards of it. And so for me, I think that, I think recycling is maybe two degrees away from the gospel. I think if we say creation or recreation, this idea, the idea that God's not just restoring our relationship with himself, but also with each other and with the planet, and one day there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and we're called to be stewards of it. Man, recycling right there. So when somebody tells me they care about recycling, I'm like, that's awesome. Why? I can tell you why I care about it. Have any of you guys been to a Timbers game? Are you familiar with the Timbers Army, like their fan club? Man, they're rowdy. Uh, I love going to Timbers game just to watch the Timbers Army. Because you see a community of people who find their identity in something bigger than themselves. And their joy, their sorrow is connected to the fate, the score of their team. They sing songs and chants about how great their team is. They're willing to dress in ways they wouldn't normally dress. They offer sacrifices of time and money to adore and celebrate the object of their affection. Tell me people were not made for worship. I can't go to a Timbers game without thinking people are made to worship. What are other things people worship? I mean, we could put 20 more circles on the board. So here, if you were here last week, hopefully you'll see the value of exploring people's lives spiritually to see where they are, to see what they care about, what they value, because I'm guessing one of these things is going to come up, and maybe that's the best bridge to begin a gospel conversation with something they already know and understand and value. So how do we transition from exploring to guiding people to Jesus? Well, one, I just think we look for these natural gospel connections in daily life. Second is we ask permission. Because none of us want to force a spiritual conversation with somebody who doesn't want to have a conversation, right? Have you ever found yourself in one of those conversations? where you're just like, oh my gosh, I don't want to be here. This is so awkward and uncomfortable. And the other person's thinking the same thing, and you're like, how do we get here? And you're both trying to figure out how to get out of there. <laughs> if you just ask for their permission, that protects the relationship. It puts the ball in their court. I had a buddy in grade school, well, all my life. Um, and if he had a new girlfriend and he wanted to kiss her, he would ask her permission. He'd be like, hey, can I kiss you? And I was like, dude, that's so cheesy. Like, just go for it. But for him, like, he wanted to ask permission so that he knew if she said, yeah, that's okay, he can go in confidently. But if she said no, well, then why force the awkwardness on both parts, right? 
And I think that's helpful for us as we think about engaging in spiritual conversations. That's just asking permission is a great way to protect the relationship and care for the other person. Uh, one question I ask people a lot of times as I'm exploring is, what do you think the main message of the Bible is? People have a lot of different ideas. But then it's pretty normal after that to say, well, could I share what I think the main message of the Bible is? I'd be interested to get your thoughts on it. Simple way to ask permission, but to see if there's opportunity to continue the conversation. The third thing is one word, sometime. Sometime, could I share my perspective with you on that? Sometime, could I share how Jesus has changed my experience of this thing? So that takes the pressure off the moment and it helps you gauge their interest. If they're like, oh, sure, that'd be great. The next time you meet with them, you know you've got a green light and they're expecting you to talk to them about that thing. If they're like, oh, okay, that's fine. It's like, okay, maybe you don't want to force it. Maybe you want to ask some more questions. There's a variety of ways to share the gospel. And I think one of the best ways we can guide people to Jesus is through our own story, our own experience of him. So one of the greatest strengths of our own story, our own testimony, is that it's personal. It's relatable. Like, people like stories, right? A lot of people have probably had the same experiences, the same struggles as us. And they begin to see how Jesus is relevant in our daily life. So in college, I took the time to write out my three to five minute testimony, which was actually a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. And what was hard was trying to figure out what not to share. Like Jesus had done so much in my life, um, and I just wanted to share it all. But a good guide doesn't need to tell you everything. You just need to point out the major landmarks. And so sitting down to do that process helped me do that. And as I thought about the work that God had done in my life, it became an act of worship to really celebrate the ways God has provided and shown up for me. And once I had that three to five minute testimony, it gave me a lot of confidence. Um, for me, like truth was, was a big theme. And as truth came up in conversation, it was really natural for me to, to share parts of my testimony or to share the whole three to five minute testimony. I began to look for those opportunities. In high school, uh, I had this friend. We'll call him Tim because that was his name. Uh, <laughs> And Tim would argue with anyone about everything. He was pretty well known for it. It was really annoying. But there was one summer I'd come home um, from Montana, back home to Kansas, and I was hanging out with Tim and some of my other buddies from high school. Tim and I were catching up, and Tim was getting ready to light a cigarette. And he said, John, I heard you're a Christian now. Why is that? You have until I'm done smoking my cigarette, and then I'm done listening to you. And he lit a cigarette. I mean, none of my friends would have believed it because for Tim to, like, give someone else a platform to talk for a few minutes while he just listens was unheard of. And I was so thankful that I had spent the time, like, thinking through what are the major landmarks in my life of how Jesus has shown up that I would want to communicate. So in that moment, I wasn't stressed out thinking, oh, what do I share, what do I not share? Is this important? Does that connect? Like, would, is this going to be helpful? Like, oh, what are the things I want Tim to really know? I had already done that work. So in that moment, I was able to share with Tim who Jesus is, what he's done, how he's changed my life, and how I started to follow him. So that at the end of that conversation, Tim could have a pretty clear idea of who Jesus is, what he's done, and that if he wanted to start following Jesus, he had a pretty decent idea of how to go about it.
So I want to give you guys some time to think through your own stories and how Jesus has changed your life. So in your bulletin, there's a little chart in there. On the left side, it says before Jesus or without Jesus. And then on the right side, it says after Jesus or or with Jesus. And so what I want you to do is to think through these gospel themes. If you can read my writing or the ones that are up there. um, And see which ones stand out to you. Which ones are ways that, that Jesus has really given you a deeper understanding or experience of the gospel. What are challenges maybe that Jesus has helped you overcome? Which of those themes are ways that Jesus has made himself known? I encourage you guys to do this for a few different themes. And the reality is, in a room like this, there's probably at least three different kinds of people in the audience. There's people who have come to Jesus later in life. Maybe you've just been following Jesus for a couple years. You've got a lot of experience to pull from as a non-Christian. Maybe there was a, a drastic turning point in your life. This will be the easiest for people like that. Then there's those of you who maybe grown up in the church. Maybe you started following Jesus when you were five. You don't have a whole lot of depravity to, to pull from as far as the stark contrast between before and after. Um, you might not even know when you became a Christian. This is going to be a little bit harder for you people. Um, this was me. This was my story. What I encourage you to think about is maybe what are ways that you're currently experiencing the gospel? What are ways that Jesus is revealing himself to you based on these themes? Because the reality is uh, our testimony isn't a static thing. It's constantly growing and changing as we have a deeper experience, deeper understanding of the gospel. So for you, maybe rather than the before and after, think through life with Christ and life without Christ. Like what are ways you're experiencing the gospel? And you can just think, what would it be like if Jesus weren't in my life? The third group of people are are those of you who aren't currently followers of Jesus. And so I would encourage you to do this exercise as well, but maybe think through um, what are areas on this screen that I would say, man, this is really hard for me. This is an area where I'd like to see something change in my life. And then maybe just invite Jesus to try to give you some perspective or understanding of who he is um, and what he would have to say about that. I'll give you a couple examples. Maybe this will be helpful. Um, For me... I've always wondered what was true, but I found that truth is a person who can be known. It's not long. It's definitely not comprehensive, right? It's just a starting point. Or I've always struggled to figure out where I fit in, but in Jesus, I found that I have a community that welcomes me as family. So I'm going to give you the next three minutes. Uh, Maybe write down a few of these themes you connect with. And do your best to write a before statement and an after statement, or a without and with, and then I'll come back up in three minutes. So I realize that's not a lot of time. Some of you may be still trying to figure out which theme you're going to write about. Is anybody feeling bold, though? Is there anybody? Oh, awesome. That you have like your one-sentence testimony that you'd be willing to share? with the rest of us? I often like to say that our stories are not just for us. They're to be shared. It doesn't have to be perfect. We're not expecting this to be polished. Thank you for being bold. Bold, brave, and daring. I had two thoughts. Um, First of all, just creation and the ordered world without Christ 
there's all this order that happened, and how could it be here? How, and with, with the Lord, I can see his creative genius and order. And it's kind of a parallel in my life. Without Christ, it's all up to me to make it all happen. But with him, I can see how his plans for my life unfold with order and purpose. That's great. Thank you. It's a cool, cool parallel. Who else? Without Jesus, I feel like it's hard to find purpose and direction in my life. Um, but with Jesus, I can learn how to live for Christ as my purpose and my direction. And then secondly, um, without Jesus, I become too focused on myself um, and what I have done. Um, but with Jesus, I can learn how to be more focused on God and what he has done. Awesome. Thanks. Another one? With the Lord, I, that's where I find my joy instead of my circumstances. That's great. Thank you. Thank you guys for being willing to share. I, I just, I so believe our stories are not just for us. Like, as we think about them and as we share them with others, it's an act of worship to celebrate this great God who has pursued us and been at work in our lives. So thank you for sharing. And I would encourage the rest of you to share with each other. And continue to develop these, maybe for a variety of themes. For me, truth and identity were some big ones. And as I just kind of thought about my own story in light of those, in conversation, I just, anytime somebody would mention truth or identity, I'm like, oh, this is a great opportunity for me to share parts of my story. So as, as far as application, uh, I would invite you guys to maybe write down the names of three people that you would like to share the gospel with and put it somewhere where you're going to see it regularly, just as a reminder to pray for them and to pray that God would give you opportunities to explore, to ask questions, to listen, to be able to share parts of your story. These could be great people to invite to church next Sunday. As Pastor Bob mentioned, like Easter is a time that people are being, they're expecting to be invited to church. I think even probably some non-Christians are offended if they don't get invited to church. This could be a great opportunity. If you go hang out with them, have, have dinner or dessert after church, that's a pretty easy way to start a conversation, right? What would you think of church? Did you grow up going to church? What would you think of the message? That could be a great, easy way for you to begin a spiritual conversation with someone at a time where they're probably going to be more open to come to a church service. So, in conclusion, as we consider the reality that every person is a spiritual being on a spiritual journey, my hope is that we can learn from from Paul's approach to evangelism, to explore people's lives looking for these gospel connections, to engage with them where they are, and naturally and lovingly guide them to Jesus by sharing how Christ has transformed you and how he is transforming you through the power of the gospel. Let me pray for us.